there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in breaking into a social enterprise, and maybe you're wondering what a social enterprise actually is, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a founding partner at a consulting firm called We Scale Impact, which focuses on assisting early stage social enterprise clients in emerging markets. But before I introduce you to Alden Zeka, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week, and it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Alden Zeka, a founding partner at WeScale Impact, which focuses on supporting early stage social enterprise clients, especially in emerging markets. WeScale Impact leverages 30-plus years of broad-range executive expertise and work in over 35 countries. Olden is also a senior fellow at the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship, also known as CASE, at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. And he also serves as a managing director of Boston-based angel investment group, Sidecar Angels. In addition to various consulting roles, Alden has held operating positions in luxury travel, analytical instruments, transportation and logistics, and skincare distribution companies. He's launched multiple successful multi-million dollar multinational initiatives and has raised more than $50 million in capital for ventures. Alden, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am excited to be here, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me today. I will say I am not caffeinated. I'm actually generally not a caffeine drinker. I have nothing against it. I occasionally consume it, but I just find I don't really need it in my life, and I've never taken a liking to coffee at all. Oh my gosh. Well, I have to say, knowing what you've done that makes me even more impressed <laughs> because <laughs> you juggle quite a lot, Alden. I do. I have always enjoyed kind of having things run in parallel and having two or three ventures going at the same time. Ever since I was, I think, a child even, I would say, I've enjoyed doing things simultaneously, uh, not necessarily in the moment simultaneously, but broadly in my life and thinking more maybe breadth than depth at times. Okay. Well, I think you're probably one of those who falls into the category of naturally caffeinated. Yep. Probably is true. (laughs) Probably is true. So I thought before we get into the espresso shots, it might be a good idea to help our young listeners who may not be familiar with social entrepreneurship, social enterprises, what that is, what it means, and also what you mean when we're talking about emerging markets. Sure. So social entrepreneurship or social enterprises, there are varying definitions. The definition I would use are 
organizations that are doing good in their society or in their culture or location, they can be for-profit, they can be non-profit. I think historically people have thought of social enterprises as non-profits. Largely in a U.S. context, we would say charities. But that model has really changed over the last couple of decades where many for-profit businesses now realize the value, both financial and intellectual, emotional, in making improvements in their society or culture a key part of their mission, a key part of their organization. So examples might include businesses that work in healthcare or education or growing food or taking care of waste cleanup, where they may well be profitable and they may well be very good businesses unto themselves. But in addition to that, they're really driving to help improve their community, their culture, their society, could it be the environment or things of that sort around them. So that's the broad definition of what I would use for a social enterprise, where a social entrepreneur is the entrepreneur behind the social enterprise. So I think that's how I would define the two terms. For emerging markets, historically in the US context, we've used the term developing world or developing nations. Well, in the last couple of years, maybe even a decade or so, that term has become derogatory. And it's been seen now as a derogatory term, really putting down the people and the societies because they're not necessarily developing. They may be developing economically, but they're not necessarily developing in their culture or in their societal constructs. Many of these, in fact, may be millennia older than America as a nation. So the term emerging markets has really become much more in favor now as to indicate the emerging financial aspects or economic aspects of those markets, but not necessarily the fact that they are, quote unquote, developing, because they are often very well established from other non-economic measures. Excellent. That is perfect. Fantastic. Now we're ready to go. Let's dive into the 10 espresso shots. The first one being, what entry-level jobs, Alden, are available to young people who want to break into social entrepreneurship? So there are a few entry-level jobs for social entrepreneurs. Of course, one is dive right into it. There's nothing that says you need to have another job before becoming a social entrepreneur yourself. So that's an obvious first job you could have is just to found your own business that is focused on doing something good in the world. But beyond that, we often see social entrepreneurs come from backgrounds in international aid or things like the U.S. Peace Corps, where they've done volunteer work or low compensated work, working in the emerging markets and firsthand witnessing the problems that exist there, which then gives them the emotional and intellectual impetus to found something on their own that's going to address some of those problems. Excellent. Alden, what do you think is a useful hard and soft skill that you look for in the young people that you hire? Yeah. For early stage employees, early stage hires in this field, I believe it's critically important that they exhibit empathy, that they are good listeners. They may be good speakers and talkers as well, but it's really important to be able to empathize with the people that they're trying to work with and to listen to their concerns and to understand that often they are coming from extremely different backgrounds 
than the employee themselves. And to be able to recognize that difference and serve those beneficiaries, as we often call them, well. To be very quick also to respond, not to be delayed or to procrastinate at all. I think those are skills that are incredibly important for young people entering this field. Would you say that those are mostly soft skills? I would. I think most of those are soft skills. They're not things that are often taught in an academic setting, but they are things that are, I guess I would say, core to a person's own personality and the way they may have been raised or what they have taken away from their upbringing. So I would very much say they're soft skills. I think from a hard skill perspective, most of the hard skills in this industry can be learned either on the job or in academic settings. And I personally don't think there are that many, if any, critical hard skills that are necessary to start a career in this industry. I do think as one progresses, developing hard skills is important for later stage jobs in this industry. And what, just very briefly, would those hard skills be that you think are most useful for our young listeners to try to cultivate? I think the hard skills, the couple of hard skills that I would mention would be being fairly, I would say, analytical. And I don't necessarily mean numeric analysis, but analytical, being able to look at a situation, take in information, make a logical decision based on that information, and then proceed forward. And I'd add to it a second hard skill, which I think is critically important, especially in the emerging markets, is the ability to adapt when new information is obtained and to be able to adjust plans and be, some might call it resilient, in their approach. Because what is true today may well no longer be true tomorrow. And I think just because you're good at analysis and the ability to make decisions, if you're not adaptable and willing to change those decisions in the face of the changing world, then you'll be stuck and you won't be able to evolve and grow with it. Excellent. Yeah. You need to be nimble. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So what about someone's major? Do you think it's a deciding factor to get into a social enterprise to become a social entrepreneur in any of that? I don't. Yeah, I I don't think what a person's major is that important, honestly. I think, yes, it can obviously give certain knowledge and background on a particular topic. So, for example, if someone wanted to be a social entrepreneur in a medical arena, then likely had they majored in science or something related to medicine, it would be helpful. However, broadly speaking, for social entrepreneurship, I do not think a particular major is more or less favorable to entering the field. I think education, though, is important as a way to help people understand how to focus their energy, how to stay on track for a given goal and a topic. So those benefits of education are important, but not necessarily a particular major. Okay. And what about a graduate school degree? Less so for somebody breaking in at the entry level, more so for someone who would like to be in the C-suite who would like to be a founder. Is it useful to have a grad school degree? And if so, Alden, what do you think are the most useful ones to have? Yeah, I do think it's useful to have a graduate degree, but I will also say I don't think it's required. And in today's world where, especially in the American context, graduate degrees can be 
very expensive to obtain, and also, of course, many years worth of effort to obtain. My advice would be I'd be very thoughtful about whether I would want to pursue a graduate degree and enter this field. Again, I don't think it would hurt anyone. I do think there are benefits to it. But the question is, are the opportunity costs, both financial and time, to pursue a graduate degree worthwhile? I'm not sure. And they're definitely not required to get into social entrepreneurship. You are also teaching at the Case School at Fuqua Business School at Duke University. They have one of the few social entrepreneurship programs in the country. What do you think a student gets out of a program like that that are the intangibles? Yeah, I I think, first of all, you're absolutely right that I think Case is one of the top-notch programs in the world for training social entrepreneurs and especially future C-suite occupants in those enterprises. I think what the students get out of it is often a much broader perspective of the opportunities and a much broader perspective of the various skills necessary and the challenges that they will face in running an enterprise themselves that they wouldn't necessarily obtain unless they were in the trenches and already running the enterprise. But then there's the risk that the enterprise they're running, because they don't yet have that background and experience or at least viewpoint, is at risk for for failing, unfortunately. And I think it's one of those where often people who have not had that exposure don't know what they don't know. And if they don't get good advice, they don't find good mentors or role models, and advisors that they can rely on who have that perspective, then it's much more challenging for them. And that would mean, again, potentially wasted time, potentially lost opportunities, potentially money or resources not well spent. So I think for many people, going to graduate programs to learn is beneficial, and it gives them that broader view. But again, I think it's a balance to be found. I think with the right network or pool, of advisors, counselors, mentors, it can be a substitute often for a more formal education. Yeah, it sounds like maybe it's also possible to cobble it together. Yes, it definitely is. It definitely is in the right circumstances. And again, it depends a little bit on the personality of the individual as to which is the way that they learn the best, which is the best for their situation and their opportunities that they're trying to pursue. Okay. Alden, what about life experiences? What, in your experience, are those kinds of experiences outside the classroom that you think are most useful for someone to try to have, to try to explore starting out in this field? I think one of the really important experiences outside the classroom that people going into this field should have is going and putting themselves in a challenge, what I'll call a challenging situation. And I don't mean it has to be life-threatening, and I don't mean it has to be something that is going to be seriously at risk for you in terms of either physical or financial harm, but rather putting yourself, though, in a situation that is definitely far outside your comfort zone, far outside your historic experience base, whatever that may be, and really seeking to understand two things. One, why are other people who are in those situations, what is their circumstance? Why are they either thriving or being challenged? What's the difference? And two is understanding your own limitations, understanding where you are or are not 
willing to compromise in your life and what you are or are not willing to sacrifice in your life to pursue your goals. So I think those kind of experiences and what the experiences will differ for everyone. Is it going on a trip and living on your own somewhere in the backwoods for a week? Is it going to a foreign country and living like the locals do for a while? Maybe. But it could also be done at home. I don't think it has to be something where you physically pick up and go. You can put yourself in challenging situations intellectually without necessarily physically relocating. And what about just being a member of a family and having a bunch of siblings? Sure. Definitely in today's world, that's absolutely where we're all at home. So it's much more confining physically and we're on top of each other often. It can definitely be a situation where your own family can put yourself for sure in uncomfortable situations and definitely one where you can learn. I would say, though, it may or may not be for the average person a situation that maybe isn't as far out of your comfort zone as you want to try because the assumption would be most of the people in your family and yourself probably share a fairly common experience base and a fairly common situational base in terms of, of course, geography, but also economics, opportunities, culture, belief systems, and values. And so it may not broaden your thinking enough just to be working with your family. But I definitely think it's advantageous. Well, I think those are excellent points. And I think that you're absolutely right. If you want to be a problem solver as a social entrepreneur, you are more likely going to be putting yourself into a situation that is unfamiliar and outside your comfort zone, which would probably be outside your family. Alden, what is the best part for you of being a social entrepreneur? The best part for me without question is working with the people I work with. I get to work with just incredible, amazing people who are passionate about what they do and have dedicated their lives to improving the world, their societies, the situation for the people around them. And that is so inspiring. It's so uplifting. And that by far is the highest reward and the best part of working in my industry. And as we know, and my goodness, social entrepreneurship is probably a place where you would find those gnarly, (laughs) huge, complex problems that would be equally frustrating as much as they are inspiring when you're trying to solve them. What is the flip side for you? You are a founding partner at WeScale Impact. You're also a managing director at the angel-based investment group, Sidecar Angels. What's the flip side in terms of the biggest challenges and the part that sucks the most for you in those jobs? Yeah, I think that the most difficult part or the most uncomfortable part, the undesirable part of the job, I I put it into two aspects. One is administrative paperwork and bureaucracy. There is a lot of it, especially in the field of social entrepreneurship. Many times we are working with government or quasi-governmental agencies who are potentially funding projects or overseeing projects or often, even if they're not funding it, at least regulating projects, especially in the worlds of health, education, agriculture, and food production. These are fairly regulated industries, and there is a lot of government bureaucracy, paperwork, administrative work that is involved in 
getting that done. And to be honest, that's not really fun. It's also often not seen as core to mission, but it's things we have to do. And so that part's not so exciting. And I think another aspect that is really tough, not so much for the entrepreneur maybe, although it is in a different way, but for what I do is sometimes telling entrepreneurs honestly that their vision, their passion is unlikely to succeed. It's unlikely to achieve the impact or the benefits that they want, at least in the way they're going about it. And then trying to help them understand that there may be an alternate path to achieve what they're trying to achieve in the big picture, but that on a day-to-day basis, on a smaller operational basis, may not be the path they were on or are on currently. And that can be very uncomfortable. You know, it's effectively telling someone that your dream isn't feasible, or maybe it is, but in a very different way. People don't like to hear that. And I can understand why people don't want to hear that. So that's what makes it challenging sometimes is to have those hard conversations with people about where they want to go and what they want to do. And I think as well, that's where the passion comes in, because in order to solve sometimes what would appear to be intractable problems, you need to have so much drive and so much grit and so much resilience because that's what's going to get you across the finish line despite the challenges and despite the odds maybe the odds are against you succeeding three final espresso shots alden what is the best career advice you've ever gotten the best career advice i ever got was from a distant relative i think he was a third cousin or something of that sort who told me and he was retired when we had this conversation and i was in high school so there was a fairly big age spread between us And he said to me, you should think about deciding early on in your life, in your career, do you want to be a specialist or do you want to be a generalist? And he wasn't advocating for one over the other. But all he was saying was, if you become a specialist, you can become very good at something, whatever that something is. You could even become the world expert, the world leader at it. And you will probably get recognition for that. You will get accolades potentially for that. But you will be in your narrow niche. On the other hand, you can go and be a generalist. You will have lots of opportunities because you are a generalist. You'll be able to pursue many things, but you may never get recognition for that. You may be able to contribute in many different ways, but it may be much more behind the scenes. And again, he wasn't advocating for one over the other. What he was advocating for was go and figure out which one you want to be. Personally, I chose to become a generalist. It fit my personality much more, and it was much more interesting to me. Oh, that is fantastic advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. Two final espresso shots. What movies, if any, Alden, or Netflix, Hulu, Amazon shows, or books, do you think accurately depict your profession? You know, I can't think of any videos, movies, or books that really reflect social entrepreneurship well. I think there are many that reflect aspects of social entrepreneurship, but they tend to come from one side of the picture or the other. There are tomes that speak about how this is the future of business, but they don't talk about the fact that there will be significant resistance to change and that it's going to be difficult to get that change. There are others that talk about how 
this is very challenging, but they don't necessarily talk about the opportunities and the fulfillment that comes from pursuing those. I haven't yet found anything that's what I would call a fully balanced perspective. And I'm not sure that one could have such a balanced perspective from any single author, producer, or director, because we're all going to come with our biases and we're all going to shade it in the way that we think is right. I'll be honest, I would do exactly the same thing. I would portray it with my bias. And I tell my clients all the time, I come to you with my point of view based on my experiences, based on my value system, and the same for my teammates and colleagues. And it is up to you to think about how does that apply to your value system? How does that apply to your circumstance? And then to take away the parts that you do value from that and to honestly throw away the parts that you feel are not applicable because it's your life and you're the one who has to live it or it's your enterprise and you're the one who has to run it. So don't let others tell you what to do, but that doesn't mean don't listen to their advice. Definitely listen to it, but then filter it and figure out what's applicable to you. Okay, fair enough. Final espresso shot. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about your profession? I think for most people, the most surprising thing about my profession is, and I don't think this part's surprising, there's a huge demand for people who are willing to try and solve the world's problems. There's a huge demand for people like me who are working to support those people. The surprising part is there's not a lot of money behind it. There's not a lot of support beyond intellectual support behind it, or at least not enough. I think that the world talks about these big problems like healthcare in the world for billions of people and how do we help them improve their lives for climate change, for resource constrained situations. But the actual amount of funding to resolve that, the amount of coordination to try and resolve that is much, much less than I think people would expect or would even think is there. And that's unfortunate. So that's a bit surprising. And Alden, do you think it's because there haven't been enough examples of social enterprises that have had a really big impact that has reached scale? I think that's part of it. And I think that's right. I think that there are so many social enterprises that have been very successful on moderately small scale. And what I mean by moderately small is they may have reached tens, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even a few million people, which obviously in the absolute is not that small, but on a global perspective, 5 million people is still not even 1% of the world's population. So I think that that aspect is right, Andrea, that there isn't yet any or at least many examples of very large scale, successful social enterprises, especially those that are well known in the developed world, in America, in Europe, or places of that sort. Many of the examples that are reasonably large-scale successes are well-known in their local communities, but are completely unknown outside those local communities. And that's unfortunate. Well, hopefully that won't discourage any of our aspiring young social entrepreneurs to want to be the first to have that massive impact because we need it. Absolutely, we need that. There's no question. And I think there's a huge number of opportunities for social entrepreneurs 
even in the developed world, serving underserved populations, again, be those economically challenged, ethnically challenged, or, or otherwise, or, or gender challenged in our society. And there are opportunities there. So it doesn't require one to go to the emerging markets to have a notable impact and to be successful in moving the needle a bit in improving our world. Awesome. And I want to let our listeners know they should check out show notes for this episode to see if Alden's main time for coffee interview in which we dig into what he does at WeScale Impact and how he has built his absolutely fascinating career. Alden, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. This was just wonderful. Oh, it was great to be here. Thanks, Andrea. I really appreciate the time and I really appreciate you helping me get the word out about this industry and what people can do to improve our world and our societies. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.